Hello, everyone, and welcome back to To The Point Podcast. Everybody's doing well. After uh, maybe the last great weekend of summer, uh, we're heading into September on Wednesday, if you can believe it or not. Uh, Football is right around the corner. We have college football. Actually started this weekend. I did watch a few games, uh, you know, preseason football, week zero college football. I watched quite a bit of it. Um, But you know, a lot's going to be happening here to the point. I did an interview last week. If you haven't checked it out yet, it's on YouTube. It's on uh, the podcast. I did that um, on Thursday. So check out the interview. Uh, really interesting talking about scouting and just the inner workings. You know, I, to be honest, I asked a question and I want to elaborate on this today. I asked my guest about, you know, scouting and, you know, when you see a player at a draft and what, what you think about that player and, and how you deliberate and how those conversations go. And the conversation surprised me because Daryl said, well, there really isn't, you know, those politics that you think of. You know, there isn't that battle for a player that I thought existed because I know myself, I'm a very competitive person. Whether I'm playing Cornhole, I'm playing Risk, I'm playing Monopoly with my cousin Sawyer, I want to win. And if I like a player, I want that, I want that team to take the player and I get it. There's amateur scouts that scout in Russia. And then there's guys who scout in North America, but when you narrow it down and you're looking at the player that, okay, this is going to be available on our board in the first round. I don't want player X to be taken when player Z is the player that I want to have on our roster. So we talk a lot about that. I'm hoping to do some more interviews. Daryl is a really a nice person. Um, great interview. We talked to him after the fact, so maybe he can help me line up some more interviews. That'll be great for, for experience for me, and hopefully it'll be good conversation and good fodder for you know my great listeners to the point. So hopefully we can get some of that. Also, football, I just mentioned, it's back. Um, so coming soon, this Friday, we're doing a, a podcast with Matt Wright, he joined me a lot during last football season. He'll be back. Um, we'll talk some college football. We'll preview the uh, NFL season, which starts a week from Thursday. Bucks, Cowboys. So that's only, you know, t- like 10 days away. So exciting times. This week, we have the U.S. Open in tennis. But I'll be back tomorrow as well with Seamus. We'll talk about season three finale of Breaking Bad. Truly one of the great episodes of the entire series. Uh, we'll dive into that. And then the second half of the podcast, we're going to be discussing um, the the uh, Pacific Division offseason in the NHL. I've done my series so far where I did a roundtable with Seamus she- uh, um, and uh, Cole and Rankin where we talked about the Atlantic. Then myself and Casey Ward discussed the Metropolitan. So we'll, Seamus and I will talk about the Pacific Division tomorrow. We'll dive into all the inner workings, all the trades, movement, uh, last offseason. So that should be a ton of fun. So me and Seamus will dive into that tomorrow. So that's kind of the schedule this week. Um, also, like I said, the U.S. Open tennis. So that'll be a big, um, a big. T- I'll touch on that a lot this week. There's NHL news, even though it's late August. Training camps do start in around three weeks. So that's right around the corner. Um, it, it, it sounds like. NHL players are going to the Olympics. Uh, you know, Gord Miller uh, was tweeting about that yesterday. He's not an insider per se, but normally when he tweets, it's accurate. So I, I, I don't, I don't think that that's a, he's going to be tweeting that just for fodder, just for clicks. Um, so, you know, there's, there is COVID insurance. I know if I'm Gary Bettman, I want no piece of these NHL players going. I don't want them going one bit. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago, and I'm sure it's a negative opinion. I'm sure I, most people disagree with me. And that, that's fine. It, it, that's dialogue. That's debate. But I don't need the NHL players at the Olympics. I don't. It, I enjoy Pyeongchang. I like seeing Woltek Wolski. I like, it doesn't have to be aging players playing in Europe. I think the junior model for Canada we can put together a really good team world juniors being the precursor to the Olympics. And I like the NHL. I like the NHL season. I find it interesting. 
I don't need it. I don't need to have the Olympics breaking that up. Then whenever there's Olympics and you come back from it, the hockey always suffers. And I'd rather see consistent hockey throughout. And quite frankly, yes, I'll be excited when Canada wins a gold medal. But what is it? We don't care. Let's be honest. We don't. We care for five minutes and then it's over. Um, I mentioned like the Olympics have been over for three weeks. We don't care about Andre de Grasse anymore. We don't care about Penny Alexiak. I think the Canadian women's soccer team has more of a reach and they will be in the limelight longer. At least they should. They damn well should be. Maybe they won't be because people are brain dead, but we, we care for that split second. And then we celebrate and you're with your people. And if you like to have a beverage, you have one or two beverages with them or 10. And then the next day you're like, great. Yeah, we still won. You're hungover, whatever euphoria. And it's over. It's back to real life. It's like summer. You enjoy it. Then it's like, okay, well, it's over. On, can't wait till next summer. And it, it's just that process of life. And quite frankly, if we're the best nation in the world at hockey, which of course I think we are, but in Pyeongchang, we didn't send our best players, but neither did Russia, neither did Sweden, neither did the Finns, Canada didn't medal. So, yes, the KHL is the second best league in the world, and a lot of good Russian players play in it. But for Canada not to medal is alarming to me. And I think it's more of a challenge. It'd be a better victory. It would cement our status more to see our players win a gold medal without having Connor McDavid and Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon. Because we're going to win. I don't need to watch. I don't need to pick the team. You know, we had our debate uh, show and Sawyer was on and, and uh, Seamus and Casey myself, but what it doesn't matter who we send, we're going to win. It's like the United States basketball team. If they don't win, it's a flat out failure and it's a disaster. Canada losing. If we send, if we send our NHL players, the best in the world, and we don't win in Beijing, that's colossal. You know, is this funny line that I, I look at it this way? I want to fair fight. I don't want to be taking candy from a baby. And that's how I look at this Olympic Games. Canada will steamroll the competition. And as a Canadian, sure, okay, you might get you might get fired up for that. Yeah, we're so much better. I think the States is the second best team, but they don't fear me. So we're what's the fun in that? And I would rather us send a the B squad, if you will, and come home with the gold medal. That would mean so much more to me personally as a Canadian than seeing, you know, it's like going into war and you have 1,500 soldiers. And on the other side, there's 100 and they only got four guns between the 100 of them. Who do you think is going to win? And I might be putting too much pressure on Canada, but I, I don't think so. In sports, if you have a good team, you should win. Period. Now, there are fan bases. There are people who put lofty expectations on teams that shouldn't have those lofty expectations. <clears throat> Least fans. <clears throat> Cowboys. And then you cry and you're upset and you throw shit at your TV when if you listen to the point, you'd be like, well, no one kind of said that three months before it happened, maybe I should have just listened to him. So I, I didn't plan on starting to talk about the Olympics, but you know, that's what today's just a Monday. A lot happened since Thursday. And again, I'm not super fired up about it. It's just, eh, we go, of course I'll watch, but you know, the women our Canadian women winning at the world hockey championship, then going to beat the U S again at the Olympics. And again, I said this a couple weeks ago, the women winning a gold medal at the world's 
And at the Olympics means a thousand times more to this country than the men. Because the women don't get paid what the men do, and they don't have the limelight that the men do. That gold medal, they train for years just to compete in that one event. And usually it comes down to an overtime or a shootout, which is mind-boggling. But that moment for the U.S., for Canada, is soul-crushing. Because, yes, there's the National Women's Hockey League and those other NWHA or whatever it is around the two different leagues across North America. But they hardly get on the ice because there's no sponsorships. There's no money. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs. It's like I said about women's soccer. Canada should be the host of that league. They should start one and, you know, get good sponsorships and allow these women, especially our Canadian women who are vastly superior to our men. It's not even close to be able to do it for a living and to make a living. And that's all they have to do. They don't need to be a Haley Wickenizer and become a doctor if they don't want to. And but that medal is so, it's worth so much more. It's like a diamond ring from a cubic zirconian. It's, it's just, it's light years apart. And again, I, I've just started to watch women's hockey. I watched some of the, the U.S. Finland game today, uh, U.S. winning in the semifinal. They, they'll play tomorrow against the winner of Canada, Switzerland tonight for the gold medal, which I think Canada, of course, will win this evening. But um, you, it, it deserves its respect. It, 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 it only has so much right now, unfortunately. It only has so little wiggle room to have a platform. And the women just deserve that. And they, not only do they deserve it, it holds a lot more weight than the men ever could think of, of winning a gold medal. So yeah, didn't, didn't plan on starting the show today with the Olympics, but it, it is in the news. I saw it and why not? We'll, we'll go through the Olympics and <laughs> touch on that briefly. This weekend for me, I mentioned college football starting. I mentioned the NFL, but really my focus late Saturday and into Sunday was on the BMW championship, the second leg of the three-part finale of the PGA Tour this season. And this, this weekend meant different things for different people. It was a battle, one, to see, uh, see who can win some money at the BMW down in Maryland. For others, it was crack the top 30 so you can play in the tour championship next weekend. And, you know, making it inside the top 30 uh, for this final tournament of the season means that you get to play in, you're guaranteed to play in three of the four majors next season, the U S open, the masters and the open championship or the British open. And it, it, it gets you that it gets you that ability. You don't have to qualify for it. You don't, it doesn't matter how you start your year. You're guaranteed to play at the majors which is a gift in and of itself. So looking for people like that, Sergio Garcia had a late surge. He ends up shooting 20 under for the tournament, but with his tournament, he climbs inside the top 30. He gets to go. Eric Van Royen from South Africa has played well two weeks in a row. He qualifies entering the top 30, started the week outside of it, climbs his way in. So we've seen a lot of those stories where guys – it was just about what can these guys do to get there? Patrick Reed, Daniel Berger, Billy Horschel. These are the last guys to make the cut. We also see Canadian Corey Connors make the tour championship. Uh, Matsuyama, the Masters champion. Stuart Sink, who's 42, winning two times on the PGA Tour this year. Uh, you know, some of the uh, normal names, Brooks Kepka, Rory McIlroy, Shoffley, but also Kevin Na, who had a strong end to the season. He qualifies played some really good golf in the last month and change. But other than these names at the top of this weekend's event, it was Bryson DeChambeau versus Patrick Cantlay. Rory McIlroy was in it for a little while. Uh, Dustin Johnson made an appearance. Sung J.M. ended up finishing third. But really, from Saturday afternoon on, it was Cantlay versus DeChambeau. 
And Cantlay started the tournament well, as did Bryson. But Bryson on, on Friday shot a 60, missed the six-foot putt on 18 to shoot a 59. Would have been the 13th player ever to do that on the PGA Tour. But he was feeling it. And they started the, the day yesterday both at 20, uh, 21 under. And they finish, oddly enough, tied. Goes to a playoff. They both shoot six under par yesterday. But the story was for me that Bryson DeChambeau really blew a big opportunity. And he birdies 16 on the par five. Gets a stroke lead on Cantlay. I'm like, okay, here we go. Bryson's going to win the tournament. But then he bogeys 17. So I'm like, oh, but so did Cantlay. So now he's still up by a stroke. But Cantlay makes a clutch putt on 18 to tie it up. Bryson misses a birdie opportunity to win it. We go to a playoff hole. And three, the first three playoff holes, Bryson really, he had putts to win it. He had birdies to win the championship. One lipped out. One, he, he hit too far left. The, the other just missed by the skin of its teeth. But three putts that he would want back. And he, he just looked, you know, skyward. And he was feeling it. He's complained in the past about his driver. He's got a new caddy now. And to his credit, he didn't freak out. And he played really good golf this week, as they can't, as did a lot of people. They chewed up this course, which I'll talk about in a minute. But then the fourth playoff hole, he shanks one into the water. So he has to take a penalty, but his shot's so good. His third shot, third stroke from the penalty area, gets it on the green within a few feet. He ends up parring the hole and can't lay part as well. So he stays alive, but it was the sixth playoff hole. They're, they played three on this hole, two on the par 317. They haven't been able to decide a winner. We're an hour plus into this playoff and Cantlay makes a 15-footer for birdie, clutch, clutch putt, and DeChambeau misses to the right. And that seals the tournament for Cantlay and clinches him some good money. But with the victory, it puts him into top spot heading into the Tour Championship. And how this Tour Championship works is Patrick Cantlay will start the tournament at 10 under par. He's in the lead. He's followed in second place by Tony Finau who was eight under Tony finished moved tied for 14th in this tournament, but he winning last week, consistent player. So he's second from the entire year in FedEx cup points. Third is Bryson DeChambeau. He is seven under par. So three strokes behind the leader. Then there's John Rahm, six under Cameron Smith, five under four under Justin Thomas, Abraham, tiny answer, Jordan speed, Sam Burns. And it goes from three two to even par. So the bottom group I mentioned of Van Roy and Berger, Sergio Garcia, Billy Horschel, and Patrick Reed are 10 strokes off the lead. So the odds of them winning are pretty slim to none. And that's one of the, that's one of the faults of this setup. Uh, you know, it, it feels so good because you get really the biggest accomplishment for guys like Berger, for Sergio, who's a veteran, for Patrick Reed, uh, for Stuart Sink. You're not going to win the tour championship unless you just play out of your mind, you have two days where you shoot 60 or, you know, 62 and you really put yourself in a great position, but you're, you know, you're eight to nine strokes back. So you're needing the leaders to really play poorly where we've seen Finau play great the past couple of weeks. Cantlay's played pretty well. Cam Smith's pretty consistent. So you're relying on players to really come and have some really bad outings, but it's almost a celebration that you get to play in the majors the next season and that you get to set your own schedule and you get to keep your tour card. And it, it to me, that's, that's what this means. And it's just a you know, free round to go make some money. It's your last, last big, uh, last big event of the year. There is the Ryder cup. But that's different. That's uh, United States versus the world. So no, there are a lot of guys in this tournament won't be competing there. So you get to play this and you start up your season again after Christmas. So you get to collect some money, prepare for next season. But I, I do think this model is flawed because yes, you should be rewarded for being in the top position, but also you, you crack the top 30. You have no chance of winning this event. And I don't think that's right either. I think you should have a legitimate chance to win this. And guys like Stuart St. Guys like, guys like Bill Herschel just simply don't. And, you know, 
you don't want to start a tournament where your first group is comes out and you really have no interest in watching them because you know that these guys come Sunday are going to be nowhere near the leaderboard. And that's, what's fun about Sunday, uh, Thursdays and Fridays. Cause you're like, well, I'll watch the morning group because you know, well, if they have a good day today, they can get right back into contention. You're starting 10 strokes off the lead on an average tournament. You're starting even, you know, you're starting even with the, with the guy you start, you have a good Friday, you're right there. But you know, really, the major people you're watching here are even four under. I think Justin Thomas, because he's there, he provides something. Well, Justin Thomas, he could get hot and be in the mix. But he's not exactly been the most consistent player this season. So even he's a reach. You know, Cam Smith being five strokes back, that's a lot of holes to make up. And, you know, Patrick Cantley has been dialed in. But really, the top four players, Cantley, Finau, DeChambeau, Ron, are all interesting. You know, they are, they all are interesting in their own right. Uh, DeChambeau is interesting because of just how he, he's driving the ball. He, he struggled putting then the tournament. We've seen him really, he should have won the U S open when John Rom did. He should have won the rocket mortgage. He threw that away. So we've seen him choke a lot down the stretch this season, even though he's won two times on tour, but can he over? Can he come back after losing to Cantley? Can he have a revenge tour and sort of come out and avenge himself this week? And you know the winner of this tournament gets fifteen million dollars. That's the new model of the PGA Tour. You get fifteen million if you win the Tour Championship. Pretty good payday. Good end to your season. And again, I do think this could be tweaked. I don't think it creates the most compelling television because yes, I'm a golf fan. I'm gonna watch. Berger and Van Roy and T it early, but in the back of my mind, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out these guys have no chance of winning this tournament. It doesn't matter. They could play fantastic. They're not catching Patrick Cantlay and maybe they wouldn't anyway, but it's just the, the thought, the possibility, well, maybe this can get interesting with this model. It eliminates that from jump. And I just think that's a flawed system where if you want eyeballs, if you want viewership, guess what? We're heading into a long weekend in September. If you want somebody to sit on their coach and watch golf from noon till 7 p.m., it's not going to be because, oh, that guy's 12 strokes behind. I'm not tuning into this. College football's on at 1 o'clock. Switch. Guess what? I know a guy who's probably going to do that. Me. And I'm not the only guy out there. Again, this weekend's going to be tough because Saturday we got college football, the wazoo, and we got the tour championship. I mean, it's thank God the NFL is not on this weekend because well, that would be fun, but thank God it's not because I need that little buffer. But um, you know, congrats to Cantlay. He, he's a fantastic player. Again, I, I talk about golf being in a really good position right now, and it is because there's a lot of good. There's just so many good players. Cantlay, Deshambo, John Rahm. I, I even think a guy who's going to start even Daniel Berger is an underrated. I think he could be a champion on tour. Jordan speed is still there. You have Colin Morikawa. Victor Hovland is a guy that I think will win a major sooner rather than later. So golf's in a really good position right now. Uh, and we'll see how it progresses throughout, um, throughout, throughout the weekend. Uh, it starts Thursday, the, the tour championship, and uh, they'll do battle uh, as they finish the final leg of the PGA Tour season. I mentioned the NFL. The NFL is king. The NFL is the greatest league in the world, although they piss me off sometimes. But the preseason is over. Last uh, capped off last night with the Cleveland Browns playing the Atlanta Falcons, where Baker Mayfield got some playing time for Baltimore. Saw a lot of starting quarterbacks get some work this week. Uh, Baker Mayfield played his first game. Daniel Jones got his first snap for the Giants. Saw Patrick Mahomes play almost a half for Kansas City. Tom Brady played a half for the Bucks. Josh Allen. So it was just a, a few quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers did not play in the preseason. Dak Prescott did not play because of injuries. But many of the quarterbacks, many starting line, uh, you know, offensive lines got some work just to get their feel into the season. But the NFL is a tough sport. It's a carnage sport. It's not a collision sport. It's a carnage sport because eventually, 
when you have people running into each other down after down after down, injuries are going to occur. And we've seen that. On a lesser scale, backup quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons, uh, A.G. McCarron blew out his ACL, done for the season. You know, that's a big loss for Atlanta because they didn't have a lot of depth. We saw last night Felipe Franks, who is the former quarter former quarterback at uh, Florida, then played for Missouri. He got played the entire game last night. They signed Josh Rosen, the former 10th overall pick off the scrap heap. He's just one of the injuries. But the Baltimore Ravens are a team that are really inter- intriguing and interesting to me because they, they always get disrespected because of their quarterback, and that would be Lamar Jackson. And Lamar Jackson doesn't deserve disrespect. The guy's an MVP. The guy was drafted last pick of the first round. People didn't think, you know, Bill Polian said he should switch to wide receiver, which I think had more to do with his skin color than anything he did on the field. But, you know, he, he's always been slighted. And he's not the best passer in the NFL. Yet he's won a playoff game. He's won an MVP. I mean, you don't just they don't just hand out MVPs to people. And he comes from that 2017 draft class with with uh, Sam Darnold, with Josh Allen, with Baker Mayfield. And right now, Josh Allen, I believe, is better than Lamar, but he doesn't have an MVP. Baker Mayfield does not have an MVP. So it just shows you that this draft class is pretty good, and that Lamar as of right now, still sits at the top of that pyramid when it comes to his ability uh, and, and just his imp, you know, input and uh, what he's done on the field. But this offseason was about helping him in the pass game because their pass game was lax, lackadaisical. He had really one target that he trusted. That was tight end Mark Andrews, who's one of the best in the NFL from the University of Oklahoma. They had Hollywood Brown. He never really panned out. They had Miles Boykin. He's more of a situational receiver. Willie Sneed did not pan out after coming over from the Saints. So they had to rebuild. They signed Sammy Watkins from the Chiefs. He's a big receiver, kind of morphing into a tight end because he's gotten heavier as he's as his, uh, as his career progressed. He's really been injury prone as well. So he's kind of an iffy guy right now. Can he have a big input with this Baltimore team just because of his pass, quite frankly? Uh, but the really the key signing, uh, the, the key draft pick, I'm sorry, was Rashad Bateman. This kid's a re- receiver from the University of Minnesota. All the talent in the world can run routes. I think he's going to be a star in this league. I think you could quietly have the best receiver season. Uh, there's an asterisk by that, which I'll get to. But you think of Justin Jefferson last year for the Minnesota Vikings. Nobody thought he would be the best receiver out of that draft class. But he was better than C.D. Lamb. He was better than Jerry Judy of the Broncos. And, you know, he, he was an under-the-radar guy. I think Rashad Bateman, going in the late 20s, could have had a similar story this year with Lamar and turning around that pass game. But he's injured, was hurt in training camp, hasn't played in the preseason, very little reps. So I, I find it very hard to believe that he's going to come out just firing out of the gates. And it's going to take time for Rashad to get back. And for Lamar to get some chemistry and trust with a brand new receiver. Sammy, I mentioned Sammy Watkins has also been hurt. So he's dealing with injuries. Hollywood Brown has hardly practiced this entire uh, uh, preseason and training camp. So that's another concern. But what Baltimore does well is they run the football. Lamar is a big part of that with run pass option. Or he's in the in the shotgun, he puts it in running back's belly. He can decide whether he's going to keep it and run or give it to guys like J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards, the list goes on. But Baltimore was dealt another tough pill on Sunday. And that, uh, sorry, on Saturday afternoon, that was the loss of J.K. Dobbins. He, in the game, catches a, catches a pass out of the backfield, tries to make a cut, falls down. They cart him off the field. It's revealed that he has a torn ACL and he is done for the season. The second year running, but he's coming off a great start to his career coming from Ohio State. And that's a huge loss. I mentioned all the injuries. So now Lamar is without a lot of his key players. You look around, they got Gus Edwards. Yes, but Dobbins was big. 
they still have Nick Boyle and they have uh, good tight ends, which will help the running game. But you also want to improve the pass game so that Lamar doesn't have to run the ball as often as he does. You still want the run pass option to be there. You want it to be part of your playbook. But Lamar taking running as much as he, as he does, eventually he's going to get a hit that hurts him. And it's going to affect him. He's not going to be in the league. is going to say, you know what? We're going to load the box on defense. The defense linebacker is going to come up near the line of scrimmage and say, get run the ball, get by us. You know, give it to Gus Edwards, give it to yourself, give it to Patrick Ricard, the fullback. You'll get one or two yards, but you're not getting first down. And eventually it's going to be okay, Lamar, throw the ball to get the first down. And he's capable of that. But I just, like I just said, he's without receivers right now. He's without the number one running back and teams are going to double Mark Andrews. And it's just going to be him throwing to, you know, me, you and Dupree. So the Baltimore Ravens are in a tough spot and they're in one of the toughest divisions in the NFL. I think other than the NFC West that is loaded with San Francisco, Seattle, Arizona, and the Los Angeles Rams, all teams that could say legitimately, we got a chance of making the playoffs here. I, I think the AFC North is loaded as well. Cincinnati Bengals are clearly fourth. Joe Burrow is coming back from a torn ACL, MCL, and LCL. Who knows how he's going to look on, on that new, he's playing with a brace. And this team just isn't that good. Jamar Chase has struggled through a training camp, the rookie wide receiver, and they don't have as great weapons or defense. They're, they're rebuilding. But look at Cleveland. Cleveland might have the best roster in the NFL. And I, I mean, you know, it's them or Tampa. You know, Tampa's bringing back every starter. You got Brady, you got Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, Shaq Barrett, Devin White, in the defense, and Dominican Sue chasing Pierre Paul. They're loaded. But Cleveland is loaded as well. Uh, you know, Baker, I like Baker Mayfield. I like his moxie. I think the guy is not, I don't think the guy uh, has to be an elite um, quarterback. You don't have to be, Tom Brady was not elite in the playoffs last year. He threw three interceptions in the second half against Green Bay, but he had a really good defense and Aaron Rodgers didn't play that well. So guess what? You win the game. He didn't play that great in the Super Bowl but his defense was elite, you win. If you have a loaded roster, you don't have to be Superman. And I don't think Baker Mayfield's going to need to be Superman for the Browns, but Odell Beckham Jr. is back. You got, uh, you still got Jarvis Landry. You got Donovan Peoples-Jones. You got Austin Hooper and Joku, Kareem Hunt and, and Nick Chubb, which might be the best running back tandem in the NFL. And offensive line that is loaded. Loaded. Jack Conklin coming over from Tennessee. Your center is an all pro. So it, and then on defense, you got Miles Garrett, who is one of the most freak athletes in the world, him and Aaron Donald. And Jadavion Clowney is on the other side. And I think that'll only help Miles Garrett get more sacks. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're a loaded team. You got, you got Grant Delpit coming back. Greedy Williams was out with a torn ACL last year. Cleveland is loaded. Then you look at the Steelers. Yes, okay, Ben has some question marks, but there's one thing that you know about the Steelers. They're consistent. Mike Tomlin has coached there for over a decade, 15 plus years. He's never had a losing season. There are franchises that would die, as I hit my mic, to have that kind of consistency, to have that record as your head coach. Mike Tomlin is, I think, the most motivational head coach in the NFL. I've said this so many times to people just I talk football with. If I was playing, I'd want to play for Mike Tomlin because the way he speaks, I would go through a brick wall for that man. But this team has been written off. Big Ben, oh, he's too fat. He's got no arm. You'll see for ESPN will probably say something nicer about his weight. That's, that's what it is. Oh, he's a beefy guy. He can't do it anymore. Okay. Well, they, they got a really good running back. That I know. Najee Harris from Alabama. He can catch. He can run. They revamped their offensive line. Time will tell if it's any good. 
They still have some good receivers. I'm not saying Pittsburgh's going to light the world on fire, but I don't think they're done either. And that just, you know, this division is going to be tight and Baltimore losing a key piece that would help them on offense can only hurt their chances. They need to play super well. It's a razor thin margin in this division. You're not playing in the AFC East of the old where it was New England with Tom Brady who you could just write him into the playoffs. He was, I guess, half the reason why he had so much success is his whole regular season, you got to play junk. You have to play Miami twice a year. You have to play Buffalo, who were a joke for a decade. And the Jets were a constant joke, you know, the, the butt of the joke, pun intended, um, for a long period of time as well. But now, Baltimore, you got the injuries. You got a lot of pressures. Lamar Jackson, he's looking for a new contract. So what are you going to do? And I think that division is going to be super interesting because you got week one, you got Chiefs-Browns. Love that game. Uh, I think you got Mahomes. He's never lost a game in September in his NFL career as a starter. 8-0. Week one, I think the game's in Kansas City, but the Browns want to make a statement of what they're going to be this season. You go out there and beat the team that's been in the Super Bowl the past two years out of the AFC and just say, we should have beat you in that divisional game when Mahomes was hurt. And this year... It's about Cleveland. It's not about you anymore. It's a changing of the guard. So, And then you got the Bills playing Pittsburgh week one. So again, that's another interesting matchup. And then the Ravens start week one in Vegas, where it'll be the first game at Allegiant Stadium with fans, as Vegas did not have any last year due to COVID. So tough opponents for each team in that division to start, and I can't wait for it to get going. But a tough blow for the Baltimore Ravens for sure. We'll see how they react from this. Um, the New Orleans Saints last week named Jameis Winston their starting quarterback. This was no surprise to me. I think it was the only decision. Taysom Hill, I mentioned he's the Swiss Army knife of this team. He's better at being a tight end, being a running back, being a wide receiver than he is at being a QB. And I like him in that jack-of-all-trades role. I think he's super effective at it keeps defenses on edge. And, you know, Jameis is a guy that he's trying to revive his career. He sat on the bench last year, learned from Drew Brees, one of the best quarterbacks to ever play the position. It's harder to get a better mentor than Drew Brees. So we'll see what he can do. Again, he doesn't have the greatest supporting cast. Alvin Kamara is one of the best running backs in football. Marquez Callaway, the second year man out of Tennessee, looks like a weapon. Can he find, you know, can they upgrade their tight end position? Not likely before the season. I think that would have helped the team having a big tight end that you can rely on. But Jameis has got a big arm. We know that. He's prone to making bad decisions. But what will be interesting to see is, will he check the ball down on a third and nine? Where, okay, you might have to punt, but you could put a team in bad field position rather than trying to fit a throw into triple coverage and the ball gets intercepted and they bring it back and they get the football. It's just simple things that a guy like Drew Brees would not do. And Jameis has done in the past. And you see Jameis gets replaced with Tom Brady. And that's basically the same roster goes on to win a Super Bowl. That's got to hurt. And, you know, the saints box matchups last year were personal and they were big because they played three times because they're in the same division. New Orleans won both in the regular season. Then the Bucs ultimately got revenge in the playoffs where they they really destroyed New Orleans, and it was Drew Brees' curtain call, his final game in the NFL. I think those games will be personal again this year. You get Jameis playing his former team, his former coach, and Bruce Arians, who basically said, I can't do anything with you anymore. You're not valuable to me. You turn the ball over too much. I'm I'm moving on from the guy that you know was taken first overall. And I think I think Jameis will be motivated to play well, but it's just tampering down, okay. I want to go throw for 500 against my old team and be the man and just say, I want to win this game. I want to beat him, but to beat him, we need to be smarter. And we talk about divisions. This division is interesting because I, I don't know what to make of it. You know, I think the bucks are clearly the favorite. I think they'll win this, win the division pretty easily, but can New Orleans make the playoffs? Can Jameis lead this team to a playoffs? But I'm not so sure. Carolina, I don't think they'll be a playoff team yet. Um, 
Sam Darnold be interesting to see what he looks like in the new uniform with Matt Rule, with Joe Brady, with people who actually believe in him. Uh, I do think they'll be better. You know, Robbie Anderson, if Christian McCaffrey can stay healthy with, uh, with uh, DJ Moore, they, they, got it. they got some good skill position players. But, you know, I don't think they'll be a playoff team. And then you got Atlanta, who have been really a doormat for the last couple of years. They got a new head coach in Arthur Smith. But how does Matt Ryan look? He's aging. They do have Kyle Pitts, who I think is the best player from this past year's draft. So he'll be interesting to watch. But Julio Jones is gone. So now it's really Calvin Ridley's show. Can he, you know, is he going to be doubled? How does he look without having Julio, you know, kind of a, a, a guy to take some pressure off of you? And can they do anything with it? So interesting division for the NFC South for different reasons, because I think you're going to see some poor teams in that division with a load of Tampa Bay who are the front runners to get back to the Super Bowl as we approach the start of the season here. Also over the weekend, the Philadelphia Eagles made a move. They traded their six round pick uh, in the 2022 draft to Jacksonville for quarterback Gardner Minshew, who is oddly enough, a former uh, six round pick from Washington state. Minshew has been the starter slash backup in Jacksonville the last couple of years. He uh, he started a season and a half, but last year he, he ultimately won, went one in 15, did a terrible roster, and they selected Trevor Lawrence. So when Trevor Lawrence was named starter last week, it really marked the end of Minshew mania in Jacksonville. And he's now been traded to Philly where he'll likely be a backup quarterback, but he does have a better chance of starting games sooner rather than later. The Eagles are not going to have a great team. I think they'll be last in the NFC East. You know, it is the one, it is the worst division in football in all likelihood. You know, the Cowboys, you got the, the Washington football team and the Giants who are all unproven. So, but you know, Jalen Hurts is also unproven. He's only, only made four starts in his career. You know, Philly's always in the rumor mill to acquire Deshaun Watson, who's still on the Houston Texans roster as we speak, but that could change at any moment. And you know, Minshew is a, is a durable and he's a starter in this league. And for Philly, it's smart because you want to have a guy that can at least play. Who knows in this division, maybe you can compete. I don't think they'll be that great because I don't think their defense is very good. I don't think they particularly have a great offensive line. That's been a big problem with them. And, you know, they still have Zach Ertz and they, they do have some better weapons than the last couple of years. But in the event that Hertz goes down. You want to have a backup that you trust. And to be honest, the way I see Philly season going, I don't, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprised to see Minshew start a few games in, in place of Jalen Hurts, even if Jalen is healthy. And I think that's stupidity from Philly because you need to see what you have here. But Philly's done some things in the last couple of years that are really crazy to me. You know, Nick Sirianni coached, um, you know, Nick Sirianni knew Carson Wentz well, and he, he knew his, his tendencies. And he said, okay, yeah, I think I can get a lot of this guy. Then they trade him, you know, right after he says this. Didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, you know, Jalen Hurts, he, he didn't name Jalen Hurts the starter in training camp. He wanted, he said it was a competition between him and old man Joe Flacco, who hasn't been good since he won the Super Bowl, which was, a, you know, a decade ago now. So, Philly just doesn't seem like a good situation to me. Sirianni comes off as a guy who thinks he's a lot smarter than he is. And he's getting his draft picks to play rock, paper, scissors against each other. And he, in his interview, he played rock, paper, scissors against guys to see what they would pick. And I, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But for Minshew, I think this is a better opportunity for him. Sitting behind Trevor Lawrence, he knows he's never getting into a game. Unless Trevor Lawrence gets injured, which... Could happen because Jacksonville doesn't have a great offensive line, but he knows there's no future for him in Jacksonville. It is Trevor Lawrence. They want Trevor Lawrence to be their starter for the next 15 plus years, you know, in the best case scenario. But, and that means that Gardner Minshew is just, is just there. He's a placeholder. He'll always be looked at as a backup quarterback. And he's a competitive guy. And I'm sure in his mind, he thinks I, I can start in this league. I have before, but I've been in really bad situations in Jacksonville. Put me in a spot with some talent. I can do this. I can win football games. And to be honest, 
I don't doubt him. I think I think he's a confident, you know, he's an overachiever, and you know, coming from Washington State, playing at a small program, I give him a good chance of doing that. But we'll see what happens. I I wish him all the best. I do think it's smart of Philly because Joe Flacco is not a good backup quarterback. The guy hasn't played well in forever, and I don't know how he's still in the NFL. Quite frankly, after the debacle he was with the Jets last year. But Minshew was going to be traded somewhere, and I do I I think I applaud Philly for being a team that went out there and got him before a team like the Cowboys did it, before even the Giants. I think the Giant they got Mike Glennon, but Minshew's a better quarterback than Mike Glennon is. I think Indy, you know, obviously it's a tough trade in division, but I think Indy could have been a team that looked at um, Gardner Minshew because you know Carson Wentz. It looks like he'll be able to start Week One, even though he's placed on the COVID protocol list today, but Jacob Eason, Sam Ellinger, those aren't exactly guys that you're confident in. Uh, they have played limited snaps. Ellinger's a rookie. So Minshew's a guy with experience, and I think it would have been interesting to see what he would have done, but good move for Philly. Get, get a good backup quarterback, a guy who has experience in the league, and to help Jalen Hurts uh, progress into this season. Mention Indy. Uh, Carson Wentz placed on the COVID protocol list today. They're also going to miss T.Y. Hilton, you know, their longtime receiver. He's got a back injury. He's going to be out the first couple weeks of the season. And Sam Ellinger, their second-size third-string quarterback, has an ACL sprain. He's going to be out a month. So it looks like if Carson Wentz cannot go week one, it will be Jacob Eason as of now. He's effectively won the job because Ellinger was hurt. So we'll see where, where Indy goes, but it looks like Carson Wentz and Quentin Nelson, who had the same foot surgery, will both be available for week one and um, will be available for Indy and they'll both play. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that, but it does look like they'll be ready to go week one. We will get, I'll get into more football throughout the week. Still the whole Cowboys debacle where Dak Prescott did not play the entire preseason. And now, the preseason isn't vital, but he's coming off an ankle injury that was pretty serious. It's one of the more disgusting injuries I've ever seen. And I'm, I would have played him some. He's also got a shoulder problem. So and he would be starting point blank. Uh, and I really don't get why he, he didn't get any snaps. It, it would worry me. They play the first game of the season, a solo stage, solo game against the defending Super Bowl champions, having not played in 330 plus days. And I, I just worry for Dak and how he, how he takes this long term because he, he's, he was a durable guy, but now he's got a shoulder, shoulder injury in training camp. He's still got the ankle. And we'll see how this goes, but I worry about him long term uh, in Dallas. Um. Also over, probably was some NHL news over the weekend, and it wasn't just small news. Um, we'll start with the Carolina Hurricanes, and the Carolina out of nowhere they sign, they give an offer sheet to Jesperi Kokniemi, the center for the Montreal Canadiens, and Kokniemi is a former third overall pick. Um, from Finland, played in the NHL as an 18-year-old, which was stupid from the beginning. But Montreal has never really given Kokniemi a chance, in my opinion. He's a guy that, again, they played him as an 18-year-old when he wasn't physically mature enough to play in the league. And then Bergevin and co. seemed to just hate him because he didn't produce when they wanted him to. And has he been inconsistent in the NHL? Yes. But... Teams can kill a player with how they develop him. And I look at Montreal as a clear example of doing that to Kakaniemi here, where he was a third overall pick, which some people said was a reach at the time, but that's besides the point. Who gives a crap what other, what other teams, what other people do? This is about you and how you evaluate your talent. They like the player, but they had the option in the entry level to send him back to Finland, which is what they should have did. But they had the third overall pick and they wanted to play him in the NHL because Montreal, you know, we've seen big markets do this all the time. And to me, it was just stupidity. 
The kid was not ready to play. He was not physically mature enough, especially the center going up against big, you know, big guys in your own division. And he wasn't scoring at the rate he's used to. And again, he, he didn't light it up in the finish league the year he was drafted. So, so last year, He's a healthy scratch in the first couple of games against Toronto, which was mind-boggling. But he scores an overtime winner in Game Six. Uh, he scored a huge goal in Game Six. Then he was a healthy scratch in the last few games of the Stanley Cup Final. And I remember watching. I said, "This is this is it for Cockneyemi." Montreal is clearly showing that they have no respect for this guy. They don't think he can play. And I didn't get it. I saw the same thing with Romanov. Where why is he playing? Kokaniemi was playing with Josh Anderson on the most efficient scoring line. And then he's in the press box. And you can't tell me that, uh, you know, replacement level players giving Montreal a better chance to win than Jesperi Kokaniemi or Romanov. These guys are both picks that they've, that they've made that they like, and they're just disrespecting them. You don't give a better chance to win with Eric Gutzison. Or with you know whoever uh, Ryan Paling than you do with Yusperi Kokniemi, and Carolina I think made this offer sheet for a few reasons. One I think they look at Kokniemi, they have some finished talent on their team, and they say he'd fit in well here. He can slot into a third line role, potentially a second line role, and be an effective player. And they you know they gave him a six point one million dollar one year contract for for this season that Cockneyemi has signed. So they have a week to decide if they want to match it or not. If they do not match it, Cockneyemi will be will, uh, will be a member of the Carolina Hurricanes because he's a restricted free agent. But a few years back, Montreal offer sheeted Sebastian Ajo. And Ajo, obviously a great player for the Carolina Hurricanes. And he was offer sheeted and he did sign with Montreal, but he did sign the offer sheet, but Carolina matched it, but it was a, it was a lame offer. Bergevin lowballed, you know, it was a lowball offer that you knew Carolina was going to match. It was more of a joke than anything. And I, it's just this code in the NHL, which, which, which is stupid, but it's, you don't offer, you don't take my, my talent. You don't take my, you don't take my player on a date, so to speak. And I think that's, that's what happened where we saw what happened with Anaheim and, and, Edmonton back in the day with Dustin Penner, Brian Burke talked about that, how that just became a war between the two teams. And there was really a, a hatred there for a while. And I think Carolina's owner, Tom Dundon hated that Montreal did this. And apparently this was Dundon's move. He wanted this done. It was not Don Waddell who pulled the trigger. And the funny thing of the contract, it's 6.1 million with a $20 signing bonus. And funny enough, about, you know, oddly enough, Sebastian Ajo's number is 20. So they're sending a clear signal across the bow that yes, this is about hockey reasons, but also it's a personal vendetta that we're going to get even with you for doing us dirty. And, you know, 6.1 million is clearly overpaying Sperry Cockney. And there's no denying that for what he's done in his career. It's a big overplay overpay, but there's, they have Andre Svechnikov. So about I, the aforementioned Sebastian Ajo was on that team. They, they have a, a good team. I, I, we talked about them in the Metro. I think their team's gotten worse. Uh, in goaltending, they got rid of some good defensemen. Uh, Brock McGinn was a big loss for the team. But I, I, I respect the move, even if it is out of haste and a little bit of you know hurt feelings. But uh, I think Cockney, it would be great for him to have a fresh start because Montreal just clearly doesn't value him. And I'm... For him, I just hope he can go to a team that sees his value and that can, you know, optimally use it. Because I do think he has a ton of talent. It's at its surface level. They just need he just needs a team to say, okay, this is where we see your role. This is what you can do for us. And for Montreal, it's been, okay, you're not a top line center, you're going to the press box. And Montreal can blame Kokniemi. Okay, yes, he wasn't uh, the strongest kid at 18, but you knew that when you drafted him. Did you not have a pre-draft meeting with him? Did you not interview him before? Did you not see him in training camp? And yet you still decide to play the guy because at that point, Montreal was a struggling team and they didn't have a whole lot to sell. 
They just said, well, we'll play our third overall pick because that'll keep fans happy. First of all, doing anytime you do something to keep fans happy is stupid. And that's just my opinion. I, the, the moment you start thinking about fans when you make a move is the second you're going to get fired as a general manager. Because who gives a crap? It's going to sound really bad. But who gives a crap about fans? I, give, I care about winning. And you need to look in the mirror and say, are we going to win this year? No, I'd rather be in a position to win three years down the line. My fans will be happier then. They might take some suffering now, but when we're in a position to win, and if we do, then Cockney Emmy or Player X not playing now, it'll make more sense and it'll be a better story down the line. And I, I, I just look at Montreal as a team that, couldn't see the forest and the trees and just said, okay, we have this third overall pick. Our team stinks. We need something to sell. Let's play them. First of all, it's terrible. That's a terrible way to run your organization. And two, it's a terrible way for the kid. And nobody can tell me he hasn't affected his career because he's never been put in a good situation. Alex Galchenyuk's story is similar, but I think Alex Galchenyuk's work ethic was way less than Kakaniemi, but they played Galchenyuk too early. They switched him from center to wing. I mean, Montreal loves doing this to their players. Oh, we draft you as, as, a, as a winger. Okay, you're playing center. Why? Okay, we draft you as a center. You're playing wing. Let them play their position. And, and Montreal's another team where, okay, well, we don't have a first-line center. You have to be it. Or it, it, they, they just, they do stupid. You know, we've seen them get to a cup final. I'm not killing their franchise. I think Bergeron has a solid general manager, but their development of players over the past three to five years has not been that great. I look at Romanov, talking about these are two examples. Galchenyuk's another one of how you mismanage an asset. And Galchenyuk's career could, be, could have been really different. I do think his work ethic was minimal, but if you actually put him in a position to succeed, and I don't think Montreal ever did that fully. So, um, We'll see what happens with Cockney. I don't think Montreal will match it. I think he'll be a Carolina Hurricane. It's a lot of money. I think Montreal will want to keep some flexibility on their cap for the next season, and they'll let Cockney walk because they've they've already showed that they don't really value him anyway. So we'll see what happens there. Also over the weekend, Jack Eichel and his representatives met with the NHL and the NHLPA to discuss his injury dispute with this current team, the Buffalo Sabres. So we talked about this on a few podcasts, but Jack Eichel wants to have surgery on his neck. He feels it's necessary. And the team's basically saying, no, like just, you know, we'll rehab it, you know, let it sit there. It'll get better, you know, with, with rest and relaxation. And Eichel's been persistent that he wants to get this surgery, but for whatever reason, you cannot get a surgery in the NHL without the team signing off on it, which is just crazy to me because it's, it's basically somebody telling you that you can't take, take, you know, you don't have control of your own body. And that's like, I didn't know NHL players were slaves, but I, that, that sounds an awful lot. Like, okay, I want to go outside to take a piss. No, you can't. Okay. Um, we're back in fourth grade. Uh, and I, I've been on team Jack. I go from the beginning with this. I, you know, I've heard this week on different shows that, well, you know, Owen Power going back to Michigan. Well, every player did. Yes. I still think it looks terrible in the Buffalo Sabres organization that he went back without even considering playing for Buffalo. Because that team's a dumpster fire. They are... They... I was talking about this yesterday with a few friends. They potentially could not win 20 games this year. Wouldn't shock me if they win like 18. They are that bad. Craig Anderson was going to retire. He came out of retirement to go to Buffalo. He's going to start games this year at 40, 41 years, however old he is. Over the hill, cooked. He's going to play, get, is just bells rung in, playing for this terrible, they've lost Ristolainen. They lose Reinhardt. They're going to be worse. This team potentially could be worse than the team that tanked to try to get Connor McDavid that oddly ended up with Jack Eichel. But, it's three weeks to training camp. I don't sense that a Jack Eichel trade is anywhere close. And if I'm a team 
And I say, well, if I acquire Jack Eichel, is he going to need surgery? And the answer is yes. That makes me way less compelled to, to trade because I'm trading players from my current roster to get Jack Eichel. And then when I get him, he can't play for who knows how a long period of time. And that's, that's just counterintuitive. So it's a difficult situation when it comes to the injury. I'm, I'm not, I'm such on team Jack Eichel because you need to have control of your own body. Nobody knows how you're feeling other than you. It's like mental health. If you're dealing with something, nobody can tell you that you're not because they're not inside your brain. Anybody who says that, you know, they can kiss their, your ass. But for Eichel, he says, my neck is bothering me. This could be something that really affects me later in my life. You should have the ability to get that looked at, get it fixed if you want. And Buffalo holding him hostage here just doesn't sit well with me. And I, I disagree with it. And I, I'm never good. And to think Buffalo's common sense, their common sense meter is at a zero. So I'm not going to support a team that has their logic has been flawed for many years now. Now, when it comes to Eichel and the wanting out of Buffalo, I think he holds less weight there. I do think he's one of the top 10 best centers in the NHL, but he has underperformed. Um, he hasn't been exactly what they hoped for. Um, I don't think he, he went into a tough situation. Buffalo's never been a great team since the Danny Breer, Chris Drury era. But so, I, you know, his asking for a trade, I, I don't give him as much credence, as much support as I do the injury dispute. But and I think Buffalo and, and you know, their, their management staff should um, should hold on to him and get the best deal that they can. You don't just trade an asset because they want out. You trade them when you get the offer that you want. And if you're Eichel, go into training camp, pass the, pass the um, physical, and you get paid. At least you'll get your salary this year. Of course you want to play, and it's a frustrating, I'm sure, as a competitor, he wants to play. But if I'm Eichel too, if I can get, play, if I can get paid, I'm not playing for Buffalo. Because I'm not playing for a team that's not allowing me to get surgery to try to help, you know, help fix part of my body that's really ailing me. So it's an ugly dispute there. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where it goes, but uh, it's an ugly, ugly situation. And um, I wouldn't want to be part of that organization right now because it's just a mess. Um, I was going to get to baseball today. I'll, I'll get to that later in the week. What's one thing that's interesting in baseball this weekend is that the New York Mets, especially Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor, are s- celebrating when they get hits and they're doing it with a thumbs down. And what they're doing is in their own respect, booing the fans. The fans have been booing the Mets a lot lately because they've been struggling since the All-Star break. They were in the lead at the All-Star break by three and a half. Now they're trailing the division by six and out of the wild card by, I believe, eight games. They're not going to make the playoffs with just a little over a month left in the season. So it's a mess in New York. But most people hate this because you're booing the fans, but I, I love this. I'm sure nobody's surprised to hear this. Boo the fan. Do it. Who cares? Like when the Leafs didn't want to salute the fans a few years, a few years back, I was all for that because fans never get it back. They, they can boo. They can scream at you. They can curse. They can yell profanities and nothing happens to them. Nothing. They can act like idiots and nine times out of 10, nothing bad happens to these people. No, boo them back. Do what you can do. Like, Again, I love personality. I love a good, I love a good story. And booing the Mets, like Mets fans are idiots. Just like certain teams in Canada. I take things too far. And fans should get some boos too, because guess what? They damn well deserve it. And I love this. If I'm the Mets, I keep doing it. I, my my mentor that I've never met, Dan Patrick, said today, you know. You know, this was really amateur. I think this is great. I love it. Boo the fans. Boo the, sounds like a, just dismissing the fans podcast today. But again, I listen to no sound. So I don't get to hear the fans. But I do see them on Twitter. I do see some of them when stuff happens. And I live with some Leafs fans for a long period of time that were at times erratic. So boo them if you can. Have some fun.
show some personality. Um, good podcast today. I'll be back tomorrow with Seamus. We'll talk Breaking Bad, and we'll also talk about, we'll break down the Pacific Division in the NHL. Matt Wright will be out here on Friday, working on some interviews in the future. So keep, uh, keep, keep a lookout for everything we're doing. But we're excited. Football season is back. Hockey news flying through. We got baseball, home stretch. George Springer's returning tonight for the Blue Jays. We got Braves, Dodgers this week in a huge series. Um, tonight we got Rays, Red Sox, so and the U.S. Open prime time tonight. Daniel Medvedev will be on court. Naomi Osaka will be on court. So a lot of interesting things happening tonight. Uh, but everybody, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk soon.